Hi there, it's Matt here, and welcome back to the podcast. I would like to welcome back my dear friend, Dr. Michael Grandner. Thinking about that insufficient sleep and its impact leads us onto the natural conversation of then, why would athletes be suffering from a lack of sleep? And I suppose it's a two-part question in my mind. Based on your experience, vast and knowledgeable as you are, in general, what do you see in athletes as their sleep problems? Are they the same sleep problems that we commonly go through? And then the second is, obviously, they have a unique lifestyle which works strongly against sleep, which is this notion of training and travel and competition. So training perhaps goes into the first bucket, which is in general, what's happening with their sleep when they're training intensely. The second is when they're traveling, what happens? And then the third is when they're undergoing a competition, you've got that mental stress. And how does that relate to travel, perhaps an environmental factor, stress, a mental factor, and then training a physiological body factor? How should I and people listening think about the types of sleep problems that you could undergo when you're an athlete? So you bring an interesting question about sort of the uniqueness of it. And we may talk about this later, but some of the work I did was with the International Olympic Committee, and we were talking about mental health challenges in Olympic athletes, and we're developing this policy statement. And one of the things that came up in that discussion was this idea of athletes facing these very unique challenges. And the point was raised that none of the challenges that athletes are facing are unique only to athletes. Everything that they're facing are things that lots of people are facing, just in different combinations. So the things that that pop up the most from a sleep perspective and circadian perspective in athletes is number one, often very early mornings, especially when it comes to training, especially in young people, especially with some sports more than others. So football, water sports, and ice sports have to train very early for a number of reasons. Number two is late competition preceding sleep especially in professional sports, where their competitions are often very late at night compared to where the peak performance is. The third is travel. And the two elements of travel, one is the one that a lot of people think about, which is time zones. It's fundamentally different dealing with time zones within something like NFL, NBA, NHL, MLB within the United States or NCAA within North America, where you're shifting Unless you're in Hawaii, you're shifting within a couple of time zones, which is still a shift, versus, say, Olympic athletes, which can be shifting a dozen time zones or more before competition, which is just totally different in terms of a strategy and a problem. So there's a time zone. But the part of it that a lot of people discount, and we have actually have a, a couple papers on this led by Jonathan Charest up in Canada, who's amazing, by the way, when it comes to sleep and athletics, is travel fatigue. Just the concept of travel is hard on the body. Traveling constantly is hard. And even if you're not shifting lots of time zones, it's just stressful and you don't perform as well after you've been away for a while and without the chance to recover. For those who struggle with sleep, one recommendation that I've often offered and I've written about in my book is meditation. Now, up front, I was a complete skeptic. I thought it was all just a little bit, you know, but the data was really strong. So I tried it and that was seven years ago. And I've now been meditating for 10 minutes before bed every night. The app that I've been using is called Calm and I've decided to partner with them here on this podcast. 
and Calm have agreed to offer a full 40% off its premium subscription service to you, the listener. And to get that 40% off, you can just go to calm.com forward slash Matt Walker. So again, that is calm, C-A-L-M dot com forward slash Matt Walker to get your 40% off. So give it a try. See what you think. One other problem that I see very commonly besides the early mornings, later nights, and the travel issues is there's a lot of insomnia. Some sports tend to have it more than others, but partially, as you were mentioning, it's a combination of performance demands, stress, competition, pre-game insomnia, post-game insomnia. Sometimes you have just such frequent competition, they don't get a chance to rest. So like in Major League Baseball, they're playing like almost every day when it's in season and they're constantly moving around. No wonder why it's sometimes hard to sleep on the road. Those are the biggest issues I find, but I think a lot of people can relate to it. A lot of people have to get up for work a lot earlier than their body wants or school. And a lot of people have to work all day and perform and then have trouble winding down because they've got so much to do. There are some jobs that involve a lot of travel and driving around. That can be very fatiguing. Athletes, I think, are a great place to study sleep health because they have all of the environmental and social constraints that all of us have. It's just slightly different. But go into any workplace. Everyone wants to win and perform, whether it's on the field or in your job or with your family or wherever. You want to do the best you can. And our society feels like we're going uphill. And I think it's because we live in a society that sees sleep as an unproductive use of time. And there's nothing more un-American than an unproductive use of time. This is what we're fighting against, this dissonance between our biology and society. And athletes are just a great, the scientific term would be model system. I think athletes are a great model system for studying these things, but really they're people. They're people facing a lot of the same struggles that we are just in their own way. And for those struggles when people, you mentioned sort of the travel, which a considerable number of people here will be familiar with, perhaps with their jobs or different circumstances. Are there any things that you would typically recommend to say, okay, when a team has finished the game and now they have to go travel to the opposing team's ground and it's three time zones away or et cetera, and they get on the bus and they get on the plane, they're doing X, Y, and Z, they're drinking this, they're being exposed to that, it's a hotel room. Are there any things that you say, okay, if you were to listen to me, here are some of the guardrails, here are just some of the rules of thumb that I would offer that may help risk mitigate against what you're about to face. I can't solve it. I can't cure jet lag. But here are some things that I know that may be helpful. Are there any highlights of those guardrails or rules of thumb that you offer? Or is it too bespoke and hard? It has to really be circumstance-specific. <laughs> yeah, no. I think I think there's a few key things that are pretty helpful in general. Number one is the concept of banking sleep. I think that this is something that's understudied. I think our field needs to study this a little bit better, but it's something I see clinically all the time as being very helpful. And the way I explain it is, if you're coming from a position of strength, if you've been getting good sleep for a week or two, and you're as recovered as you're going to be, and you're in balance with your schedules, if you have a rough night, it's not going to be that huge of a deal. You'll get a second wind. Your next day performance is going to be fine. I mean, you look at the laboratory studies with sleep restriction and PBTs, 
lapses and, and other cognitive deficits, you can get deficits within the first day or so. I mean, you know, there's total sleep deprivation. We're up all night, but that's usually not the issue here. The issue is more sleep restriction. And the sleep restriction data show that, yeah, you can have impairments within the first couple of days. The issue is the impairments are cumulative and they build and build and build over time. So honestly, the first couple of days are we're going to be the least impaired. And actually the stress and worry and psyching yourself out is probably going to make you more distracted than one night of rough sleep is going to be once you get that second wind and your circadian rhythm kicks in and you're able to be able to focus during the day. And if you tell yourself, look, I'm coming from a place of strength here, I'm fine. It's just like if you have a generally healthy diet and you have a day where you're eating cheeseburgers and pizza, you're not going to develop diabetes tomorrow. But if you're generally having an unhealthy diet, then you have something even worse, then it throws your body off even more. So sleep banking, number one, before you travel, get the best sleep you can so that you become more resilient. A sponsor of today's show is Inside Tracker, which is a service that comes out to your home and they will analyze your blood and your DNA to know precisely what is going on inside of you. Hence the name Inside Tracker. They look at your blood, your metabolic signals, your hormonal health metrics, and then they give you a personalized, actionable set of lifestyle changes in response to that readout. And the goal there is to improve your health. I was looking and informed they have some new cardiovascular and new hormonal biomarkers that I'm particularly interested in. One that I'm focused on is something called ApoB, which is an absolutely critical heart health measure. And I get it done now with them somewhere between four to six times a year. Why? Well, my family unfortunately has a strong history of cardiovascular disease. So I am checking that pretty ruthlessly. And by the way, I do buy the product myself out of pocket. I don't want to fall prey to any of those trappings and undue incentives. Although with full admission, I still use my own discount code that you can use to get some money off. And that code for you is insidetracker.com forward slash Matt Walker. So just go over to insidetracker.com forward slash Matt Walker. And again, if you want to get that discount, it is insidetracker.com forward slash Matt Walker. Thanks very much. And just for folks to note very briefly, so by this stage, people will have listened to a series of podcasts on napping. And I speak about perhaps, I think one of the first studies to show this, which was actually David Dingus and Mark Rosekind, and they were working with the FAA and they were trying to ask, when should you place a nap for long haul travel for pilots that it would be most mitigating of the effects of sleep deprivation? And what they found was that Instead of thinking, okay, if a pilot's going to nap and they're going through the sleep deprivation, they should nap right before the end to sort of supercharge them for the most critical part, which is landing. They found the opposite, that when you nap early in the schedule, you create some degree of resilience, some partial immunity, and it led to this idea of sleep banking. And then I think the classic paper that you and I know is by Thomas Balkin, and I'll do another episode on that too. So I love this idea. And I've often said that sleep 
in some ways is not like the bank in terms of sleep after learning for things like learning and memory. If you lose that sleep, you don't seem to recover it. But that's not really talking about sleep before learning. So in other words, it's difficult to go into a debt and then try to pay it off later by building up credit. However, if you know you're about to go into debt, you can add some credit, and then the hit that you take in terms of the depth of your debt is much less. And so I love this idea. So sorry, I interrupted you before you're going on to point number two. Yeah, so the, the other thing is this concept of that wind-down routine at night. When you want to send an evening and nighttime signal, it's more than just getting into bed. It's also dimming lights, keeping them in the yellow or in spectrum if you can. You know, if you need blue blockers, I think that's a great use of them. Toning down the volume of everything you're doing, even if it's at kind of the wrong time. Practicing good stimulus control, not getting into bed until it's about bedtime. And so you could use the bed as a sleep stimulus, even if it's not actually the time you're used to, if it, even if it's a couple hours off. People who are really good at stimulus control, it essentially inoculates you against some of these issues a little bit because the bed becomes such a strong sleep stimulus that even if it's not quite the right time, it's dark, you've been winding down, you're mentally and physically tired anyway from traveling. It's really easy to get yourself into that sleep spot and the bed can help you, especially if you're good with stimulus control. And then one other thing that I think is just generally helpful with people is Starting your day with light and movement. Whenever that is, whenever you have to start your day, the more that you can start your day with that bright light pulse, get the muscles moving. Even You don't have to be like running in the morning. You just have to get moving. And that increased oxygen utilization from the muscles, actually there's great data showing that the oxygen utilization itself becomes a daytime morning signal to people. Because during sleep, our O2 use drops as we're resting and breathing a little more shallowly. And so the drop in O2 leading to a rise in O2 when we wake up, that rise in O2 that we start using as we wake up and take deeper breaths and rehydrate and all this stuff actually sends that daytime signal. So send a daytime morning signal when you want to tell your body, hey, it's morning daytime, no matter what the clock says. Send a nighttime signal when you want to say that it's nighttime Give yourself a buffer before you go and be inoculated against it with what the best stimulus control you can manage. And sometimes that's all you got. It might be different if you're traveling a lot of time zones and, and you're dealing with phase shifting, but for a couple, you know, that's usually a pretty general approach that I would take. Oh, and then the other thing is the hotel room that you're staying in. It annoys me that some hotels are very bad about light and noise. Like the, the degree to which you can block out external light, put clips on the blinds or the drapes or whatever they've got. Yeah, grab the coat hangers out that are there for your trousers. It's so funny that I'm sure you get this now too, being out in the public, that now I get a wonderful bounty of emails every week, exclusively dedicated to what people, the contortions that people do with the <laughs> hotel rooms. And there is clothing strung up on all of the annoying lights in there. There are clothes hangers that are seemingly torturing the curtains in some bizarre sort of tie me up, dress me down manner. And it's just amazing to see the lengths. And part of the reason I love two of your explanations is the first you're speaking about making sure that your bedroom is prepared in a way that you are normally used to. And this is, 
in our past podcasts, you and I spoke about insomnia and negative conditioning and being linking your bed with negative things. But you also, many people don't realize you've done many of these positive things with your sleep routine to help you get good sleep. You use certain pillows, you maybe have certain scents, you dim the lights down to a certain amount, you have a particular playlist that you listen to, you meditate, you read. And what I often try to advise athletes to do is take as much of that routine and even the paraphernalia involved and bring them into your hotel room so it doesn't feel so foreign and so it feels as though there is some degree of normality that helps reinforce what you're so typically used to that you've become conditioned to. And the second part of what you were saying, I think most athletes forget about the daytime when we're speaking about sleep and a lack of sleep when you're traveling between time zones. I think what they forget is they're not really complaining about the bad sleep. They're complaining about the consequence of the bad sleep. The consequence is about how they feel during the day. And if you can start to quote unquote, medicate the day with strategies like daylight, strategic eating, that's a way that you can start to decrease it. Let me then come on to the idea of amount of sleep. We often hear, and I'm sure you've worked with these athletes too, people like LeBron James, you've got Roger Federer, you've got Usain Bolt. All of them have described an epic sleep need that seems beyond anything that we typically have. Now, those are perhaps outliers, and maybe that there is just some heresy of media brewing that has inflated what they said, which is, I need about nine hours, and then the next article, it becomes 10 hours, and then 11 hours, and <laughs> Do you see or do you advocate for both a greater amount of sleep in athletes? And if so, why? And also, do you advocate for slightly augmented sleep regimes where, yes, it's perhaps sleeping more, but also maybe do you advocate more for daytime naps? And if you do, when should those naps happen? And how do you think about that amount of sleep and the timing of sleep and the structuring of sleep for athletes? I think you make an excellent point that A, sleep duration is really important for recovery. You need to give yourself enough time to do all the things that you're, you need to do. If you cut it short early, you're just cutting it short early. You're not actually doing it more efficiently. I mean, there's the data that says you might be slightly more efficient, but it's very slight compared to what you're cutting out. And so you're just shortchanging yourself. And so you have some of these athletes that have learned that and said, actually, the more I get up to a certain point, like actually it's way better. I do think it's unlikely that people are such outliers that it's 10, 11 hours, but you know, I don't know. Maybe it's that long in bed. You know what happens when you extend sleep, it gets a little shallower. You're spreading the same amount of butter over just a little more bread. Very dangerous. Yeah. So, so I wouldn't say that the typical person, the typical athlete probably needs 10 hours. However, I think that the problem isn't that there's so many athletes getting 9, 10, 11 hours of sleep that maybe that's harmful. I think the problem more is that there's so many athletes getting 5, 6, 7 that maybe when they need 6, 7, 8, maybe 9. Especially when you're talking about a lot of elite athletes are in the age range where sleep needs are known to be higher. Like we talk about the 8-hour sleep myth, which really means 7 is the new 8, which really means that about seven hours by self-report is probably fine for optimal functioning for a typical adult. But when you're talking about an athlete that might have increased recovery needs, maybe getting a little more would be good. So erring on the higher side might be better. Uh, again, there's not a ton of data on this, but there's enough where I'd be willing to say that erring on the, on the slightly longer side, not 
10, 11 hours for most people, but erring on the slightly higher side. And then you take that, that you're in an age group where actually the guidelines are not seven to eight. They're more like eight to 10 when you're talking about adolescents and very young adults. So most professional athletes and, and Olympic athletes and collegiate athletes, other elite athletes, they're essentially late adolescents and early adults where the needs are known to be more. So a 10-hour sleeper who is 19 years old is actually not really that excessive compared to physiologic needs. It's unusual societally, but not biologically. You make a really good point that we should be looking to people who have nothing to prove in terms of their dedication. No one's going to argue that these elite performers are lazy. And that's why they're spending so much time in bed. They got nothing to prove. And they want to win. And they're willing to do this. Is this exactly what they need? I mean, I don't know. There's all kinds of things that the famous high performers do that may or may not be helpful with the teas they drink or the socks they wear. Not everything they do. But erring on the longer side of sleep, whatever that means, my guess is that's part of why they do better. I will never forget, and I won't name any names, there was a very famous person who had a medical evaluation where their doctor said, oh, they're only getting four or five hours. That's probably why they're so successful. And when I saw that, I didn't know how to react because that's the opposite of what we need to be saying, that it's not that more is better. It's that the problem isn't that there's too many people getting too much. I know exactly that situation. And when I heard that, my thought was, okay, it's like Sesame Street. But here, one of those two things is untrue. Either yes. it's true that they're getting so little sleep, but it's very untrue that they are fit as a fiddle and as, as healthy as an ox, or they're as healthy as an ox, but they are really probably telling lies about how much sleep that they're getting. Because those two, from everything we know, do not seem to be able to coexist. Coming on to this notion of detriment then, I would be remiss not to speak about the idea of sleep as an insurance policy. And here, what I really mean is the idea of sleep and injury risk. Because I think for an athlete, one of the biggest fears, if not perhaps the biggest fear, is getting injured so they either can't compete for the next event, or they can't compete for the entire season. Or worse, it's a career-ending injury. And I also know that owners of sports teams, whether we like it or not, or whether this is moral or not, the athletes to them are essentially very, very expensive investments. And if the athlete gets injured, they will fail to return on that incredibly expensive investment in a marked way. How should people think about, and do you emphasize that notion of injury risk and the data around that regarding sleep? Yeah. I mean, first of all, there's lots of data on sleep and injury risk. But one study that I'm always a huge fan of, so there's this, uh, when he was a postdoc, his name is Ben Potenciano. He works in, in Major League Baseball right now. But when he was a postdoc, he did a project where, if I remember correctly, this was with Chris Winter. And what they did was they gave Epworth sleepiness scales to a bunch of Major League Baseball players. And so for people who don't know, it's, it's an eight-item questionnaire. You can Google it. It just says, how likely are you to fall asleep in these eight different situations? And if it's really high, generally, you have a lot of a daytime sleepiness. And if it's low, you have low daytime sleepiness. And so they gave these to a bunch of players. There was dozens and dozens of players that they gave across different teams. And then they maybe didn't do much with it. But then they followed them up about a year and a half later because abstracts for the sleep conference were due. 
And right around the time before the abstracts were due, they pulled those numbers and they just said, based on the score of this simple eight question screener, how sleepy are you during the day? How did that relate to who was still in the major leagues? And it was dose response. Every additional point on the thing increased the likelihood that you were no longer in the majors. And those who had a greater than 10, in clinic, we use that as sort of a cutoff of excessive sleepiness. The people who had higher than 10, when they followed them back up a year and a half later, 75% were no longer in the major leagues. It was never published as a paper, but it was still one of my favorite studies that was done. Uh, sleep is almost like a performance biomarker that it's predictive crystal ball-like, that if your quality of sleep leading to sleepiness. Yeah, that study gave me the idea for like, wow, if a simple sleep screener could predict something so important about performance more than a year later, what could we do? So what we did is we gave some sleep screeners to about a couple of hundred of Division One NCAA athletes. And we gave it to them over the summer before school started and then checked their data a year later, the next summer. Over the entire academic year, we looked to see who got a concussion and what we did is we looked to see how well the sleep screener predicted who was going to get a concussion. And so what we found was that some of the main predictors of concussion are things like prior concussion history, whether you're playing a high-risk sport, whether you're male or female. Those things are were generally sort of the main concussion risk factors. And they did predict increased likelihood of having a concussion in the next year. But there were two things that actually predicted it better than all of them. One was your daytime sleepiness. Again, if you were sleepy over that summer, if you reported a high level of daytime sleepiness, that actually predicted concussions better than any of the other concussion risk factors. Also, if you had a score of at least 15 on the insomnia severity index, which is a seven-item insomnia screener, again, you can Google it, but just asking how much difficulty do you have with sleep? If you were scored in the higher, moderate to high range, which was 15, again, that also separately was a better predictor of incident concussion risk than any of the other concussion risk factors. So they weren't explaining the same thing. So we put the insomnia and the sleepiness in the same model. They didn't have the overlapping. It was some overlapping variants, but it was mostly unique variants they were explaining in terms of nighttime problems and daytime problems. So yeah. Just a few simple sleep questions. The other supporter of this podcast is the electrolyte drink company called Element. Now, it's actually four letters, L-M-N-T. I am a bit of an exercise fanatic, and I started buying their products some years ago, really, because of two key facts. First is the lack of sugar content. Element has no sugar. It also has no colorings, no artificial ingredients, which is unlike many of the other mixes out there that I was shopping. The second is because of the founders who have some serious years of biochemistry experience under their belts, and they know what they're doing. So if you want to give it a try, just go to drinklmnt.com forward slash Matt Walker, and you will get eight free sample packs on any order that you place. Once again, that is drinklmnt.com forward slash Matt Walker. 
The reason that concussion strikes me so powerfully is anyone who follows sports has probably heard about the concussion head injury explosion of concern for both what I would think of as American football, but also for what I think of as classical football, which over here is called soccer, which is heading the ball or having head clashes. And of course, in American football, numerous head clashes and the risk of then the brain damage. And then what we know, the abnormal proteins, particularly things like tau protein, which is also associated with Alzheimer's disease that develop and cause some major problems. I am very mindful of your time, Michael, and to the listeners, I apologize because we do have a pretty hard stop, and I'm just going to have two more questions. I'm hoping they could be rapid fire, but I will actually take probably most of the time in trying to explain them. So the first one, I was going to speak about diet and lifestyle, but I'll focus on diet because there are probably two substances that when I'm out in the field of athletes, I get asked about most, which is caffeine and creatine. And I would love to hear your thoughts on the use of caffeine strategically. It's, I think, probably one of the most commonly used substances for performance enhancement. And I think the data there is somewhat clear, although you've already spoken about how caffeine does not bail you out of your sleep debt. But the other is creatine. I often struggle to have much to say to people. For those people who don't know, creatine is a simple peptide that's comprised of essentially three amino acids called arginine, glycine, and methionine. And it increases muscle stores of something called phosphocreatine, which is used for high energy fuel when you're doing powerful muscle contractions. Hence, it's been found to be beneficial for sports performance. And the only really good data I've seen is a paper by Marcus Dorvac and his colleagues. And they found that dosing rats with creatine, there was a dose response curve such that higher doses actually led to decreases in both the amount of deep non-REM sleep and a reduction in the electrical quality of their sleep. But the problem is, it's really only one decent study that I've found. There's no data I've seen in, in humans. I struggle to say anything meaningful about that. So if you have any creatine thoughts, that's great. But how do you think about or recommend or don't recommend the use of creatine for many people out there who I know for a fact will be taking creatine pre-workout to try to nail their workout. I think you're right that there's just not a ton of data, but there's another study that I'm a big fan of. So Miranda Lim, who's in Oregon, who's who's a neurologist, she's done some really cool work on traumatic brain injury. And she's done this great study where they gave, again, this was an animal study, where they did a traumatic brain injury in rodent model and then supplemented with branch chain amino acids prior to sleep with the idea that these are the raw materials. If your brain during sleep is going to help with the recovery from that brain injury and and prevent further problems, give it the raw materials it needs to do the rebuilding. And by the way, for folks, branch chain amino acids are what we think of as essential amino acids, things that our body absolutely needs in our diet. And when people buy, they've probably seen tubs in sports shops that say BCAA. These are branch chain amino acids in any protein powder. You're also typically going to have a 100% recommended daily dose of these branch chain amino acids. And so that's fascinating that essentially waiting for the window of time when sleep is going to be doing what it's doing and providing the building blocks to construct the metabolic and muscular house is key. But I think part of the issue is sometimes amino acids can be sleep helpful, like glycine probably has the best data for being sleep promoting, but then you have other amino acids like glutamine, which can inhibit sleep and make sleep shallower. 
and a lot of workout supplements. They're not only really formulated for sleep, but a lot of them will also have caffeine in it or other stimulating compounds, which is great pre-workout. Yeah, if your workout is going to be in the morning, we're assuming that it's in the morning. But <laughs> right. yeah, if you're going to work out at 8 p.m. and you hope to be in bed and asleep by 11 and you're banging four to 500 milligrams of caffeine unknowingly in your pre-workout, quote unquote, ultra boost drink or whatever it is. Of everything we've done, I've had a couple of patients where actually it was the evening workout supplements that were the bottleneck in terms of getting their sleep better. And actually changing those made a big impact. It's not everyone who takes workout supplements at night, it's bad or anything. It's just, it's happened. It's something that comes up and I ask about because it's something I explore. And the thing with caffeine is caffeine is great. I mean, it's probably the most used psychoactive drug in the world. If you discovered it now, it would probably be illegal. I mean, it's very helpful for a lot of things, but it can impact sleep for hours after you take it, even after you don't think you're feeling the effects anymore. And so some people who are more sensitive, like they could be having caffeine at lunch and it's still impacting their sleep at night. So it's just something to explore. But yeah, I think it's all these systems are connected and sometimes we need to get creative about what we're doing. Yeah. So just for the athletes, you know, that afternoon lull and drop, which I've spoken about before and you've discussed, we know it, it's physiological and they will use caffeine in that mid to late afternoon to help them get over the hump to really make the afternoon training session important. And now you're getting into that territory, as you described, for some of those people who are highly sensitive to caffeine, it will impact. The last question I have, we've spoken in a very focused way on this podcast with you about the athlete themselves, and rightly so. But if we zoom out to the level of teams and organizations, where can those teams and organizations find more information about sleep? You've done some incredible work, so much so that you've actually helped major sports organizations and sports governing bodies with developing landmark positional statements regarding sleep-recommended guidelines. So can you tell me a little bit more about that and where people can find it? And we'll also, of course, link to that stuff in the show notes. Sure. Yeah. So a few things. The NCAA has been really leading this more than anybody else, to be honest. To that, I need to give credit to Brian Hainline, who's the current chief medical officer of the NCAA. He's been very visionary about health, mental health, and sleep in athletes. And so I was involved with, they were developing their mental health best practices and I was brought into that because they needed a sleep person because it's an issue that just kept coming up. And so we integrated sleep best practices into their mental health best practices. So anyone who wants to Google NCAA mental health best practices, their document is freely available online to download. There was a companion book that went with it called Mind, Body, and Sport. The PDF is free to download from the NCAA's website. It was supposed to be something that any program could use to learn more about mental health, what to do about it, how to think about it. And sleep plays a pretty prominent role in there, not just as a mental health issue, but also as a performance one. Then what happened was they went on to say like, look, sleep seems to be so important. We need a separate document just on sleep. So, so NCAA became the first major athletics organization to have their own sleep consensus committee that developed sleep guidelines. And so I was very glad to be a part of that with other, so other sleep people there too, and, and other stakeholders. So that paper was published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine. And you can see that, I think it's like a wake up call for college sleep. 
pun totally intended. That's NCAA sleep guidelines. And then after that, the International Olympic Committee, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, the International Olympic Committee actually saw the amazing work that the NCAA was doing. They were really starting to focus on mental health as well. As you were mentioning, there were some very decorated Olympians who brought some great attention to this issue. And so they had never had an official statement on mental health before. So they were going to make one. And so they actually asked Dr. Hainlein to lead it. And he did. He asked me to sort of represent sleep on there. And so that document too, you can see that as Reardon and all, that was also published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine. And uh, you could see all the other people who were part of that. And you could see sleep plays a very prominent role in that document. And then that was also recently followed up by an international consensus document on sleep in the athlete from people who work with athletics and sleep from around the world with me and and others in Australia and Europe and in other places where we developed basically a consensus guideline document of how should athletics programs be thinking about sleep? What does the evidence say is the most helpful given the fact there's not a ton of evidence on stuff in athletes? What should researchers be doing? What should clinicians be doing? What should teams be doing? And it's a brilliant document. I've used that publication many many times to help guide my recommendations and i gift it out it's brilliant so we can definitely link to that yeah so there's some great papers online and i've done some work also on the on the league level with major league baseball and and a few other organizations and the u.s olympic and paralympic committee we're working on something too right now it's really rewarding because what a lot of people don't know about these organizations something that you don't really think about it's like when you're working with a team and i've worked with a lot of teams When you work with a team, their goal is to win. Great. Got it. But when you're working with a league, they don't care who wins. It's not about winning. The NCAA doesn't care who wins. They just want everyone to be safe, healthy, and fair. And so they're looking out for these college kids. It was actually really rewarding to see it. Working with the health people, they're being passionate about protecting these Division II and Division III kids who may not be professionals, athletes, but we still got to protect them. And the IOC, these are people from around the world where there's rich countries that have a lot of resources for their athletes, but that's not the majority. And so they want to look out for the majority. And it was, I'm not primarily an athletics person. And I just got to say, to be totally honest, seeing as an outsider coming inside some of these organizations behind closed doors, that's the sort of thing people are talking about is how do we look out for these people? How do we help create the structure? It's really rewarding to do that because then I got to use my 30,000 foot view on sleep and help educate on that and help drive some of this policy. What a brilliant, optimistic, positive note for us to conclude on. And that's certainly my own modus operandi. Michael, you are an utter jewel in the panoply of sleep science and sleep researchers. I cannot thank you enough both for your time and for what you do, folks please go and follow Michael online on Twitter with the handle Michael Grandner, last name, and it's all one word, Michael Grandner, and the last name is spelled G-R-A-N-D-N-E-R, Michael Grandner. You will get so much out of what he's putting out there, far more than myself. Michael, (laughs) I will leave you. I will let you go. For this, I am eternally grateful, and I'm just indebted to all that you are, both as a human as a scientist, and as a clinician. Thank you again, Michael. Thank you so much. And thank you for everything you do. It's so great to have these conversations. Thank you so much. Take care, Michael. Goodbye. Thank you. Thank you.